and welcome to The Weekly Skeptic, episode 15. I'm Nick Dixon, and I'm joined as ever by liberal globalist Toby Young. Coming up on the show today, Harry and Meghan annoy the world, Elon Musk goes full beast mode, and England go out of the World Cup. Plus, of course, our weekly news roundup and the majesty of peak woke. But first, Toby... Sorry about that introduction, by the way. That was a little reference to our immigration debate the other day. Um, let's start with Harry and Meghan. Very, very annoying. I watched episode one. You've just told me you watched part of episode three. So between us, we have sort of almost an informed opinion. And uh, I came out with basically what I thought going in, that that Harry is a wounded boy who's been sort of uh, stolen by this narcissistic nutcase, which is Meghan, who comes across as unlikable, even in her own documentary. But did you have a different take? No, um, I mean, I think, yeah, he did seem pretty whipped and she seemed like uh, the dominant partner. Um, I thought that, um, I mean, one of the things which slightly shocked me, um, and this I think has been widely commented on, is all the footage included in the documentary from way before they fell out, from way before Mexit. Um, So they were clearly planning to do something like this from the get-go, which sort of gives the lie to their claim that, you know, they approached being, you know, a couple ensconced in the firm in good faith. And it was only because they felt rejected and her mental health wasn't taken seriously. And she encountered racism within the family that they eventually fled, went overseas and made this documentary. Clearly, they were planning to make this documentary from the very beginning. Um, it, it really felt feels that way watching it that they were that, th- that this was a, a, a you know a long planned project and nothing to do with um, uh, falling out with the royal family. It was inevitable that they were planning from the get go to, to to depart and try and make as much money from their association with the royal family as possible. Yeah, well, I sort of wonder where the suckers because Netflix has had massive views. They've got you know what they wanted out of it, although it will be diminishing returns. They can only do this so many times. And it's sort of to bolster their popularity in America, though. Their popularity in England and the UK has gone way down, according to an article I've just read. And it basically says that they they have terrible popularity in England, especially amongst older people where everyone hates them. And amongst young people, it's more even and more people like them because I suppose young people love kind of whining about stuff and talking about emotions and depression and things like that. That's that's my only theory. I mean, you're right on the... Uh, sorry, were you going to say something there? People worry that it may damage the royal family and uh, and it may kind of promote wokeism globally. Uh, uh, But my my, my sense is that um, because they're claiming to be victims, you know, the the entire thrust of the documentary is that we are victims. We may seem privileged to you, um, but we were really put through the mill um, by the royal family, by the tabloid press. Um, and we've had a really tough time. We are in our own way oppressed um, and sort of making common cause with other oppressed groups. Um, you know, somehow we're supposed to believe that um, renegade royals um, suffer from the same kind of systemic oppression as, you know, people of colour, gay people, trans people and so forth. And my my sense is that if that's really their claim and they're expecting that claim to be taken seriously, um, it's sort of, it's almost like a parody of wokeism. It's like the 
ne plus ultra of the oppression Olympics. And in a way, isn't if 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 even Harry and Meghan, who earned supposedly a hundred million dollars just for making this documentary, whose net worth prior to making this documentary was somewhere in the region of a hundred million dollars, they live in this fabulous, you know, on this fabulous ranch in Montecito. Um, they have this grace and favor cottage in the English countryside. Um, they've been receiving, you know, substantial amounts of money from the Duchy of Cornwall. If even they, if this glamorous royal couple with their titles and their estates and their grace and favor privileges, if they can claim to be oppressed, if they can claim to be victims, doesn't that just kind of it's doesn't that just kind of make the whole woke victim culture just doesn't it undermine its credibility? Isn't it going to be the nail in the coffin of the culture of victimhood if even these people are claiming to be victims? Well I would question that because everyone seems to like them on that side anyway. The woke people love them. They see them as some sort of icon. Megan's their icon. They don't seem to worry about that. And that's kind of always been what wokeness is about. You know, it's the Ivy League universities in the US claiming to be oppressed. It's always been a way for narcissistic elites to claim oppression points as far as I can see. And that that idiot Monroe Bergdorf person famously claimed that a, a homeless white man can be or white person can be privileged because they still have white privilege. So I don't know if that will uh, dent the woke yeah, movement. I, I sort of feel like I agree. It's, you know, the various claims to be victims um, by different people privileged in different ways, you know, within the kind of woke community over the past 10 years have increasingly stretched credibility. But this seems to stretch it beyond breaking point. You know, it's one thing for a public schoolgirl writing a column in The Guardian um, claiming to be the victim of systemic racism. Um, you know, th- th- that's implausible and stretches credulity. But um, this just seems to stretch it beyond breaking point. Um, and you would hope that, you know, that, that, that people who aren't already in the cult aren't going to be won over by, by, by being persuaded that Harry and Meghan have been victimized and, and, and that they've been given a tough time and that they are oppressed. And, you know, we need to change the system to, to, to make life better for Harry and Meghan because they're really giving, giving such a hard time at the moment. Well, I hope you're right. The data suggests that while most people feel like that, young people don't feel like that and, and they're, they're the ones falling for it. But let's see. On the whips part, I certainly agree that his body language was incredibly uh, submissive. She was staring straight ahead into the camera at Leo said like a shark, which, you know, and, and he was turning to her for approval constantly. And that by, I don't know if you ever seen that thing with the green lines on the internet. And it, it, it indicates that where, the person who's leaning in, in a needy fashion is always the one who's the kind of the loser or like the beta or gets dumped. And they like, they look at the lines and the one who's standing up straight is the sort of in charge. So there's a lot of that going on in it. Did you notice that? <laughs> well, I, I, I you know that that's not a revelation, is it? I mean, that just confirms no. something. We, I mean, we already knew. Um, yeah, he is. He's. He's. You know, he. He's clearly the passive partner in their relationship. I mean, what's interesting is that um, she's not overtly aggressive. Um, she's passive aggressive, um, and uh, her her control over him is kind of it. It's it, it, it's passive aggressive manipulation. It's like Harry. You have to break with your family because they're not taking my 
mental health seriously. I mean, that's a very passive aggression, yeah. passive aggressive form of manipulation. It's like they're not taking my claim to being a victim in this situation seriously. You need to take it seriously, um, or you know, I'll leave you. <laughs> yeah, or I'll even uh, commit suicide. Was the most extreme version of that manipulation. Yes. And then yes. I actually watched a video on the body language where she's constantly trying to hold hands with him and things, and he's sort of pushing her hand away, like thinking it's not appropriate. Or they're all standing for standing ovation, but she wants to sit down. And he's going, no, no, we have to stand up. And it's just constantly, and her being overwhelmed by it, yeah, she manipulates him. And she certainly won. The, the most telling part was when he said, she originally sacrificed everything for me, but then I sacrificed everything to enter her world. And that's the big mistake, leaving the royal family, leaving your whole family, sacrificing everything for this one narcissistic C-list actress at best is a yeah. that's a that's a big yeah. mistake, isn't it? One other one other observation is that um, one of the kind of running themes, at least in the episode I watched, is that she she went into that life imagining it would be one way, and discovered to her horror that it was another way. She imagined that it would be this kind of fairy tale. Supposedly, you know, I don't believe it for a second, but she claims. You know, she imagined it would be this kind of fairy tale like existence in which she was this kind of um, uh, pampered princess leading a charmed life and hadn't realized that there would be any responsibilities associated with this extraordinarily privileged existence. Like she'd have to curtsy to the queen. There was a hierarchy within the royal family and you had to accept your place within that hierarchy. You had to learn how to wait. There was a certain amount of needing to go out and meet the public and go on tours of the Commonwealth. And um, you had to be, you know, you had to agree to, um, uh, you know, perform for the cameras, whether it was on your engagement day or going walkabout and so forth. And it was as though all this came as a terrible, rude shock to her. She hadn't realised that she'd have to do any of these things if she became, you know, Harry's wife. When, you know, you would have thought that would be bleeding obvious, even to someone as narcissistic and self-obsessed as her. Of course, there are going to be you know, there's going to be there are going to be some costs to these extraordinary kind of unending stream of benefits, and the idea that she was unprepared for that and thinks it's unfair. You know, we're, we're expected to think that it was somehow unfair that that she sh- that she should be expected to do any of these things, to assume any of these royal responsibilities. I say any sense of duty being associated with being a member of the royal family that came as a terrible shock, and she felt very put upon and victimized as a result of that. It, not surprising that she ran a mile uh, rather than learn to curtsy and learn how to wave. Yeah, well, in the trailer that's just been released, they have a, someone was quoted as saying uh, they wanted to, they just wanted to be free. It's like, well, then why have you married into the royal family? It's one of the least free things there is. Yeah, and it seemed that she just had an American Disney princess idea of it and perhaps really was that naive and didn't realize there was an English sense of duty, a Christian sense of duty baked into it. And on the curtsying point, that was a uh, particularly stark example where th- that's, there's that massive viral clip where she's she's mocking the fact that she has to curtsy to the Queen. And even Harry looks uncomfortable with how she's mocking our late Queen in a disgusting way. And then there have been screenshots of people curtsying to her and she just looks perfectly pleased with it, of course. So it's great if you're curtsying for her. But yeah, she seems yeah, to have no it, grasp of that. It seemed like a kind of a version of a complaint you often hear celebrities make and which always slightly irritates me. They always complain that um, having become incredibly famous and they now earn, you know, 
They paid $20 million to stand in front of a camera for three or four hours a day for a couple of weeks. And then they complain that the public has this kind of prurient interest in their private lives and paparazzi are following them around, trying to photograph them. They complain about the loss of privacy, the loss of control. Um, And you think, well, that's so obviously, you know, part of the price for being a movie star. And, you know, if you weren't a movie star, if you didn't generate this enormous public interest in your lives and your persona, then you wouldn't be paid $20 million to stand in front of a camera for three hours a day for two weeks. And if you're going to be paid that much, surely, you know, you should be willing to put up with, you know, some of the costs of being that famous, because if you weren't that famous, you wouldn't be earning that kind of money. And it's like, it's, and there's always kind of, it's not just kind of a sort of whinge. It's, it, there's always an element of self-righteous. How dare these unscrupulous uh, tabloid hacks and paps kind of invade my privacy in this way? It's completely unreasonable that they should be doing this. It's an affront. And that, that, that seemed to be the kind of theme of, um, of the episode I watched. It was this kind of complaint about having to pay the price that went with all the extraordinary benefits of being famous and being royal. I have a tiny bit of sympathy for that in in this sense, that in the first episode, we saw Princess Diana. And of course, Diana was loved by this country, which Meghan had a chance to be when she arrived, but she squandered it with her personality, as we discussed last week. But Diana was was beloved. And one reason was she just, she protected her children and she actually didn't want the attention. As she said in that BBC interview, she actually was shy and didn't necessarily want the attention. And there's a brilliant moment where, they're on a skiing holiday and the kids have already had loads of photographs in this agreed point. But then they go on with their holiday, but then they're still following the kids. They're taking more photographs. And Diana just leaves and comes up and says, I'm sorry, can you just, I just want the kids to have some space. This is their holiday. We've done the photos. Can you just now stop? And they're like, well, can we just, she's like, no. And, and, and I just, as a mother, it was such a great moment. And it also reminded me of my own childhood in the 80s. And it just, I just, I thought it was a powerful moment. And I, but that's the difference between Diana and Megan. And my armchair Freudian analysis is that what Harry's done is try to replace his mother, because as he says in part one, they were very similar, Megan and my mother. And I'm thinking, you think they are. He was clearly very wounded by his mother's death, obviously, more sensitive perhaps than William and just took it worse. And then he, he, he's tried to deal with that. And he, we saw him going to Lesotho, where actually my uncle met my late aunt, and trying to continue Diana's work there, which I thought was actually admirable. But then where it all goes wrong is he meets Megan. She's this ersatz version of Diana. He gets conned into thinking this is, you know, this is going to heal him in some way, but she's actually just a narcissist exploiting him. But up until that moment, I had sympathy with Harry. Well, and I guess um, if you're going to extend that sympathy, you could say, well, the reason he's protective of Megan and doesn't want her privacy to be invaded by paparazzi is because he saw the impact that had on his mother and he said you know I don't want the same fate I think in I think not in the episode I saw but in another episode he says I don't want the same fate to befall Megan that befell my mother and so you can sort of you you can sort of sympathize with that of course he was traumatized by what happened to his mother and of course he wants to protect Megan um, from the same kind of malignant forces Um, but you know if, 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 first of all, why bring Megan into this kind of moronic inferno then in the first place? It's not as if she wasn't already, you know, didn't already have one foot in that world. But in addition, if you want to protect, you know, someone you love from, um, you know, the cost 
the price of being famous, of being in the public eye, of being a kind of a royal. Um, uh, why not just withdraw from public life entirely, which they could quite easily do, but instead they've made this Kardashian-like reality show about their lives. Um, uh, so they clearly don't want to be out of the spotlight. It's not that they mind getting all this media attention. Um, they just want to be able to control it. And, you know, it's quite hard. It'd be, you could sort of sympathise with Harry if he wanted to withdraw completely and was complaining about Pap's not accepting that and invading their privacy if they genuinely wanted to be entirely private and withdraw from public life. But to, to complain that that they're covering you in a way you can't control, that that's it's harder to sympathise with that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the difference between Diana and Meghan again. Diana generally didn't want the attention, whereas Meghan loves the attention. She's an actress in the role of a lifetime, clearly. And that's that's a key difference. And, and that's why, yes, their excuses fall apart. Just lastly on this, and we've probably done more on this than I meant to, but, <laughs> but do you have any opinion on this William thing? I don't know what we can say legally, but the new claim in the latest trailer was the press were prepared to lie for William, but wouldn't tell the truth for us. And, uh, and there's rumours about what this William stuff is, but can we comment on that? Idea. I'm not sure. What, what do we think that is? Is that to, it's probably something so petty we've all forgotten about it? And I've heard it's to do with registered. affairs. I've heard it's to do with affairs and things, but I don't know what we're allowed no, to it's say. Not, it's not to do with dresses. It's not to do with kind of competition between Meghan and Kate about who can wear which dress and what the real story was behind Meghan appearing in the same dress as Kate. No, it's not. I thought. It, I thought. I it was thought at that level. I've heard it was to do with some of William's, you know, possible uh, dubious behaviour, but. We don't know yet. And the funny thing is, is that either way, he's prepared to throw his brother under the bus, which is shocking. Yeah, that 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 is quite shocking. Yeah. And it, it's hard to see them coming. It's hard to see them um, healing the rift um, with the royal family after this documentary, isn't it? They're, they're going to now be, I think, permanently at, at loggerheads with them. Uh, there's no coming back from this, I don't think. Right. I agree. Absolutely. And yeah, this is a question. Will they strip the titles and all that? But We've covered that pretty comprehensively, I think. So let's get on to a topic that is actually far more interesting to me, which is the the is Twitter files. So this is our Birdwatch section. I'm calling it Birdwatch again. This is Birdwatch because it's a bumper edition of Birdwatch, really, because the Twitter files parts two to five have come out since our last podcast. Uh, and that's probably the main topic. The banning of Trump is the big thing. And, and, and it's as bad as we thought it is, or, or worse. Basically, a group of power-hungry nerds got together. They wanted to find a reason to ban Trump. They didn't have one in their terms, so they just invented new terms, and they managed to get rid of him on a very dubious charge of incitement. And that's how they managed to finally get rid of Trump. And this Yoel Roth guy comes across particularly badly. He's got an alt account, which I think is called Otterific, where he sort of talks about his sort of gay life as an otter which is a gay term from the gay subculture, which I know because Andrew Doyle talked about it in his stand-up once. Uh, I think I'd be a bear because I've got a beard and I'm very strong. I'm not sure what you would be, Toby. What is an maybe. otter then? Well, you're, um, I don't actually know what an otter is. That's beyond my knowledge, sadly. But um, but it, but Yol Roth is one anyway. That's one thing we know. Maybe it's someone who likes to censor free speech. Um, and he's just got all these really dodgy quotes. I mean, he's got all this... Very, like a rotter, a rotter, not an otter. Yeah, he's definitely a rotter. I mean, one of his quotes from his alternative otterific account was, muscle bear with beard, hot. Muscle bear with beard holding a child, inexplicably hotter. Bit weird. And he's got many quotes like that. He's got stuff about not being able to tell whether it's the people next door are watching porn or have a, an infant. He's got 
just just endless horrendous quotes that you can find if you so wish it's very disturbing stuff we're not not out and out making any accusations but i'm just saying it's a bit weird and his phd account a phd account his phd thesis has been described as an ethnography of his own grinder account so he's obsessed with grinder and he seems to be quite into the idea of getting teenagers below 18 onto these apps there's a few quotes about that here and there so bit of a questionable guy and he was instrumental in getting trump banned and i've read all of them it's too much to, to digest really but the, the, one of the craziest things is they list all the things that the ayatollah's done and that various world leaders have done calling for death to entire nations and peoples and they either stay on there some in some cases the tweets aren't even deleted whereas trump says something like go patriots and <laughs> gets back from twitter have you followed all this toby yeah i have followed it um uh, and I, i'm i have to say nick i'm slightly envious that um Elon Musk seems to be selecting a succession of kind of high-profile maverick alt-media kind of talismanic figures like um, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss. Um, uh, is it Michael Schellenberg? Was he one? Yeah, his, um, was, his uh, was really good. It had a sense of drama in it. His was really good. Um, uh, and I'm thinking, well, why why hasn't he asked me? You know, can't I can't I be the can I be responsible for you know um, Twitter files? Part six. It's you a great, know, um, do, you know what, do you know what's a great thing about that, Toby? It should be you and and Barry Weiss and uh, and and Matt Taibbi have already been described as in one of the lefty. It's either New York uh, Times or the Washington Post as conservative journalists, which everyone yeah. knows they're not. It would be true. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm kind of yeah. My my vanity has been wounded by not having been asked to participate in this. Um, circus um but um one thing i've noticed i don't know if you've noticed this too nick i'm sure you have I, we may have even commented on it last week but um the twitter files have received almost no coverage at all in any of the kind of mainstream legacy media brands so nothing in the new york times nothing in the washington post nothing on cnn nothing on msnbc nothing on the bbc uh, very little in the guardian um and uh, but but interestingly when elton john decided to leave Twitter and announced he was leaving Twitter. That that was extensively covered by the BBC. So, you know, none of these kind of revelations in the Twitter files, which I would have thought, you know, are fairly newsworthy. You know, it's newsworthy, isn't it, that um, various state agencies have colluded with a private company to essentially subvert the democratic process. Um, that surely is news. Elton John leaving Twitter, that's not news. But I think in some ways, um, I do think that Elon Musk is partly to blame um, for the um, distorted way in which the Twitter files have been covered because he chose to release the information via these quote-unquote conservative journalists. It's made it easier for mainstream media companies to ignore them. They, they, it's kind of furnished them with a pretext to ignore them. Wouldn't it have been better, admittedly, perhaps not possible, but it would have been better, if possible, uh, to, have, to have given this information to the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the Guardian. I think the Guardian surely would have covered it. I mean, they might have discovered covered it in a distorted way and they might not have given it the prominence that he would have liked. But nonetheless, it would have been taken much more seriously. And I think these revelations are very important. This is critically important information. It confirms you know, everything we've been suspecting and claiming. Um, about the way in which, you know, content moderation policies are being enforced in a completely biased way um, in order to kind of um, support the narrative and undermine anyone 
who's dissenting from the official narrative across, you know, a range, a range of kind of topics, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's Trump, whether it's climate change. So it confirms all our worst suspicions. We were accused of being conspiracy theorists for claiming that, you know, these various powerful agencies were conspiring behind the scenes to suppress dissent in these kind of crucial, sacred areas where you're not allowed to challenge the kind of prevailing orthodoxy. Um, We were accused of being conspiracy theorists. Turns out we aren't conspiracy theorists. Everything we suspected was going on was going on and the Twitter files prove it. So it's sort of a shame that he's kind of let the mainstream media off the hook. You know, the very people who were accusing us of being conspiracy theorists for claiming this is how it all worked behind the scenes are now being let off the hook because they've got an excuse not to cover it because of the way in which Musk has released the information. I think there's something in that you can criticize Musk a little bit for his, but it's also his strength is his Generation X ironic humor and kind of meme wars. It's kind of what's so brilliant about him. But it's also if he if he'd covered it in a very very sober way, that would have been harder to attack. However, I still think they would have ignored it anyway, because if you're just going to call Matt Taibbi a conservative and he's not, what can you really do? You know, they're independent, genuine. It's really about genuine journalism versus these fake journalists who just put out the same rubbish. They get a message, put out this nonsense now, that Elon Musk is dangerous or something, and then they all just repeat the same exact thing. And, and people like Glenn Greenwald are pointing this out. It's absolutely pathetic. I agree, I agree. Yeah, no, that, that, of course, you know, um, it's, it's important journalism, and in a way it's fitting that people outside the mainstream media who are doing real journalism, like Matt Taube and like Barry Weiss, um, are being given these stories. Um, and of Maybe, maybe you know, no mainstream journalist working for a legacy publication would have been interested in any event. But it's a bit like if you can imagine, you know, um, uh, let's suppose Deep Throat back in the mid 70s um, or early 70s um, decided that instead of contacting a couple of Washington Post reporters, he contacted a kind of slightly crazy CB radio enthusiast and gave the story to the CB radio enthusiast. You know, it's hard to imagine that that would have ended in the resignation of um, of Nixon. And it's, it's not quite like that, but it's almost like that. It's like, uh, couldn't you have found someone on a mainstream publication who would have, you know, taken this story seriously, reported it properly, and given it the kind of prominence in a kind of respectable outlet that would have made it much harder for you know the authorities, the powers that be, everyone we dislike and are fighting against to ignore. I think that's a fair point, but I also think this is a war, Toby. Between it's an info war, to use the uh, Alex Jones phrase, between two completely separate ways of doing things, and and this is just the start. The Twitter files, I mean, they're such a big thing on their own. I don't I don't know if smoking gun is a sufficient phrase, but. This is just a start. And I've listened to these Twitter spaces where Elon Musk sometimes comes on and Kim.com comes on. And there was one last night with Kim.com and Carrie Lake, the you know, who just lost that race in Arizona in questionable circumstances, came on. And you've got all these quite big names coming together. And it's fascinating. And what a lot of people are saying is, look, this is the beginning because what, what happens when we get into Google? That's going to be even worse when we see how they suppress free speech and, and how they manipulate searches. What about Facebook and Meta? And so it's just, this is a this is a massive massive thing. It's it's the, it's the it's the cathedral, the regime, whatever you want to call it, versus everyone else. And this is just the beginning. So I don't know if it's a case where you even can feed it to someone in the regime. I don't know if that's even realistic. However, I do appreciate 
that Musk can be a bit wild. But he, and he's got in trouble this week for a couple of brilliant tweets, really. One where he said, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci, which has had them all melting down. And one where he said, the woke mind virus is either defeated or nothing else matters. Now, with the Fauci one, people were replying, these self-appointed informers of the regime saying, uh, T-Mobile, have you seen this? And all these people are shutting him down and trying to get him docs are trying to lose advertising. Absolutely disgusting. And on the woke mind virus one, of course, people didn't like that either on the woke side. But he's absolutely right. We have to defeat wokeness if we're going to have any kind of society. Yeah, I, I, maybe, we're, maybe, maybe we're getting to the nub of what we disagree about then, because when you use phrases like the regime and the cathedral, you're <laughs> implying um, uh, that, um, you know, the people who work for the Washington Post and the New York Times um, are sort of bought and paid for that they are they are you know shills for um, you know a powerful cabal who are kind of running the show behind the scenes. So of course they'd never um, publicise the Twitter files um, because it would show how you know the sausage is made. Um, is there any other explanation? That... It's not even behind the scenes anymore. We've found out now. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but I don't think. I mean, I, I think it's. I don't think that. Um, you know, the journalists who work for those mainstream publications are shills for the regime. Um, uh, I think that, you know, um, f- for a variety of reasons, groupthink, status signaling, um, uh, I don't, th- I don't uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think they, 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 they wouldn't dare kind of run something which might offend their paymasters or offend someone in a powerful position who might be able to get them fired. I don't think that's, I think it, it's more, it's more kind of that they think of themselves as being on the side of the righteous in a kind of um, moral battle. And they see Musk as a baddie and and they sort of sympathize with people like, you know, um, uh, Yoel Roth, um, uh, who, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who, who want to kind of protect Twitter users from harm. And they, they really do think that Trump was inciting violence and therefore should have been banned. And that was completely legitimate. Um, so, you know, in some ways, um, if, if like me, you don't think that it is kind of um, as orchestrated as all that, and they don't all kind of work for the man. It's just kind of groupthink and status signaling and kind of, you know, um, self-righteousness. Um, uh, then actually if you confronted them with all the data about the manipulation going on behind the scenes, the various ways in which dissent is being suppressed, you know, it, it might snap them out of, you know, uh, it might, it might cure them of that mind virus that, 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 that Elon's warning us against. And I think, it, I think it is, it is, I, I don't think, I don't think it's a completely lost cause. I don't think they're just, you know, corrupt journalists who've kind of completely lost touch with, you know, journalistic ethics. I think, I think if you, I think, I think so anyway, so, 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 that's why I sort of hope that it that it would it would it is still possible to persuade them to write stuff you know which which undermines the narrative at uh, the dominant narrative in these kind of critical areas. Um, but I, I I don't think the game is as lost as you do. Yeah, well, I, it's not surprising you've got the more optimistic view again. But it, it's <laughs> I just think I don't even think it's as conspiratorial as you're saying. I just think it's open. I mean, we we find out now, and, and this is behind the scenes that the, the DNC were contacting Twitter and. There's this Jim Baker guy from the F- who was in the FBI before, and he was involved. And we, we don't know how much the FBI are involved. But to me, it's just open warfare. I, I don't see this as even controversial. I just think, yeah, you've got that side, which involves the fake news, as Trump would call it, which involves the deep state of the FBI and so on. And, involves it. and it's not that they're 
in a conspiracy. It's just that that's their ideology. They either through being paid off, because you mentioned paymasters, or through ideology, a part of the they believe in globalism. They believe in this new thing, this post-capitalist thing. We're all going to be more like China and whatever it is, the World Economic Forum. Even if you think that's not actually doing much, if it's just a front, they still believe in those ideas versus the rest of us who don't want that. I just think that is the 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 open war. And when you have people like Elton John leaving, which you mentioned briefly, and you have people like Mark Ruffalo saying he's going to leave and go to Tumblr of all places, and you see even Stephen Fry muttering about the evils of Musk and in that ludicrous interview where he, he said that Piers Morgan was on GB News, which just shows how clueless he is, or he, he's pretending not to know, which is even worse. I just think it's it's pretty simple. Like This is the divide. It's between people who believe in freedom and transparency and all these people on the other side who believe in censorship and control and believe they're in some way either are the ruling powers or want to associate with them like Elton John and Stephen Fry and, and have chosen that side. And it's this well, thing of the left have got power, so now they see themselves as in power. Carry on. Yeah, I think, there's, of course, there's a grain of truth in all that. But I like to think that... Um, Members of the kind of liberal elites um, in America, particularly in the media, um, uh, if confronted with the fact um, that real suppression involving agents of the state like the FBI is going on um, uh, and that, you know, members of the Biden campaign were reaching out to friends and allies on social media platforms like Twitter to suppress stories they knew to be true, but which they thought might damage their candidates' electoral chances. I mean, if they knew about, if they were confronted with the extent of the kind of um, machinery of oppression and the degree of collusion, um, uh, I think think they, they would find it hard to justify that. I don't think that they've, I don't think that that's priced in. I don't think that they've, in. I don't think, I don't think you're right to say that, you know, they're just, they're just pro censorship because you know their side is on top, so they so they, they don't care about any of this. They they priced it all in. They're aware of it, and they've just accepted it because the right side is winning. I think that 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 you know if you confronted them with it, they would find it hard to justify. And one of the things which slightly annoys me about the way in which the Twitter files have been released and publicised is that it's been done in such a way that it's enabled them to ignore it and turn a blind eye to it. And if you really confronted them with it, if it was front page of the New York Times. Then, then they would, they might, they might then think, crikey, you know, maybe some members of our side are going too far. Um, they have actually crossed some important lines here. Um, uh, you know, um, the First Amendment may have been breached. Um, uh, I don't think they think of themselves as having given up altogether a belief in free speech. You know, they're constantly engaging in rationalizations and kind of mental gymnastics to try and justify, to try and reconcile what's happened with a commitment to things like the First Amendment. So if you really confronted them with all this evidence of this kind of behind the scenes manipulation and suppression, I think they would, I think they w- it would give them slight pause. I don't okay. think they're completely bought into the kind of worst, darkest aspects of the way the regime operates. But who, who's confronting who here, Toby? I mean, we have it now out there that the New York Post piece that Kayleigh McEnany shared was suppressed and she was suspended for sharing it. And it was a genuine piece about the Hunter Biden laptop. And it was, and, and it was, and it was, and the FBI had already spoken to Zuckerberg about this story, indicating it was Russian misinformation. And then 
Twitter banned it on the premise it was hacked materials, which was complete nonsense they were making up. And they seemed to know it even at the time, pretty much. Now, who do you want to be confronted with what? Because the New York Times can see that. We can all see it. I've talked about it on the telly. We can all find it. And why have the BBC, as you admit yourself, not covered it? Because it's there for them. Why have they deliberately put it below sort of Elton John, below cleaner gets sacked from Twitter? I mean, it's, absolutely, it's not even there. And it's a massive, massive story. Now, you're saying it's just, what, pure jealousy because they gave it to Barry Weiss. I mean, that's not a reason. So who do you want to confront who with what? Because it's all out there. <laughs> well, I guess um, because because it's been given to these rivals of theirs um, who've set themselves up as kind of, you know, real journalists in contrast to them uh, doing real journalism in the way the New York Times and the Washington Post used to do. You know, it, it's 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 kind of, it's made it, it, it's sort of inviting them to ignore it and dismiss it. Um, and I would have, I think just politically, if, if, if we want to protect free speech and we want to stop this kind of thing happening in future and um, we want to do something about, um, you know, the weaponization of so-called misinformation and content moderation policies for political ends, then it there, there, there could have been a better way of doing this, which would have made it um, harder for the kind of mainstream to ignore. Right. So Musk and basically dismiss- had to go... Sorry, he had to go to the enemy, essentially, and say, here, look, here's this exclusive story, and here you are, mainstream media. Don't try not to ruin this one. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there was that woman on the hot mic a while ago, wasn't there, one of the one of the American news shows that said we had everything on Epstein and we had to spike the story. So the, the question is, who could Musk have gone to who would have acted in good faith? And, and it's a good question because probably not many people. I see what you mean. If they fed it to the BBC or something, but... We've seen over the last couple of years, especially since COVID, how the mainstream media like to suppress information. So, you know, who would it, who, in your dream world, if it wasn't you, he went to, which obviously be an ideal one. Who else? No, that who would, would he, you'd have, have been the same problem. Yeah, but who else would he have gone to? Problem. Yeah. Well, I would have thought that, um, you know, he could have. I, I, I imagine. I mean, maybe he would have had difficulty persuading the New York Times and the Washington Post to uh, run the story properly and give it a good shout. Um, but I would have thought the Guardian would have covered the story properly. Um, and um, I would have thought that you know, he could have offered it to someone like Panorama. You know, I would have thought that they, they'd be quite interested in doing something on it, don't you think? I mean, maybe they would have kind of, they would have caveated it and kind of, there would have been more nuance in the way the story was 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 reported and it might not have caused such a big sensation. But, you know, I think, I think... It, uh, I, I I just think it would have. I, I, my worry is that it'll just be ignored, and these practices will now continue. And and I'm worried that um, I don't know if you, you know, you know when Musk had that conversation with um, the EU official, and he accepted that if Twitter was going to operate in the EU, it had to observe the Digital Services Act, which is this EU wide law and as part of the digital services act you have to promise if you want to operate as a social media company in the eu to remove misinformation and disinformation and so that's going to be i think in the terms of service of 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 twitter i mean it it probably is already but i don't think it's going to be removed either in europe or in the uk and that's going to be weaponized in due course by our political opponents to suppress dissent and um i would have liked to have um I would have liked to have seen, you know, those who support um, uh, uh, 
the, 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 those who claim to be worried about misinformation and about the threat it poses to the sort of integrity of the democratic process across the West, I would have liked to have seen them confronted a bit more um, with with the way with a clear example of the way in which um, misinformation has been um, weaponized, or rather the way in which supposed concern about misinformation has been weaponized for political purposes. Um, I don't know. It's just, I feel like it's just going to be ignored and things are going to get worse. And maybe that was inevitable, but maybe it could have been handled in a slightly different way, which would have, which would have, which would have um, uh, made it harder to suppress mis- to suppress dissent on the grounds that it's misinformation in future. But maybe I'm just naive. Well, yeah, the question is, would the EU ever act in good faith? And who can you go to who's not one of them? I'm starting to doubt you, to be honest, Toby, with this conversation. Um, but on a serious note, I think what Musk has done to, to to conclude this is he's going for the big prize now. He 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 tried to act in good faith. For example, he tried to work with ad agencies and then they, they sort of broke the deal and said, no, no, we're going to try and get all these big companies to boycott you. And he said, OK, I found now you can't work with them in good faith, which he wanted to do. He started out like that, but he's become more and more sort of red pilled on how bad these people really are. And I think he's just at the point now where he's gone, okay, it's all or nothing. And he said in lots of tweets, okay, Twitter is the new place where we get news. It's making MSN irrelevant because they can't keep up with the pace of change. And I think he's just now going all out saying, maybe I'll need to make a new phone. Maybe I'll need to make a new press. Maybe Twitter is is a whole new sort of uh, subculture, a whole, I don't know what, ecosystem where it's an entirely separate world maybe of, of news you know, uh, payments and everything. And I think he's just, I think that's his only option. I think it's, 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 it's the nuclear option because there just is no one to trust on the other side. And they are, and the deep corruption that he's seeing, and he's seen even much more than us in these Twitter files, the deep corruption shows that they just have no interest in fairness. They have no interest in free speech and they can't be reached this, the other side. So I think he's just gone all out war. Well, maybe, maybe my, my issue, Nick, is that I don't think he's thinking strategically enough about this. Um, I mean, I, I I sympathize with his ambition to make Twitter, um, you know, a a news based platform that breaks news, uh, and that's clearly why he's given these stories um, to these various um, uh, maverick journalists and broken them on Twitter. He wants to, um, in some ways, rebrand Twitter as a news platform, uh, a more trusted news platform than you know legacy news brands. Fair enough. But the difficulty is, if um, if as a condition of being able to operate within the EU, he has to promise to remove misinformation and disinformation, and if that's adopted in the UK as well, which it probably will be, uh, one of the things the online safety bill will empower Ofcom to do will be to fine big social media companies like Twitter up to 10% of their annual global turnover if they don't enforce their terms of service. So Ofcom, so what will happen is if um, if the Daily Skeptic writes a story um, challenging some aspect of the net zero climate emergency agenda, someone, and, and we promote that story on Twitter, someone will then report Twitter to Ofcom saying Twitter is, is promoting misinformation about net zero and the climate emergency. Um, and you have to threaten them with a fine because they've promised to remove misinformation in their terms of service. Um, and in that scenario, I can't see um, Twitter doing anything other um, than removing that information. So that's really where 
that 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 that's the real obstacle to Twitter becoming a kind of trusted um, news publisher to rival the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, uh, it, it can't do that unless it um, makes it possible uh, to um, get around these new kind of regulatory and legal mechanisms, which you know, for want of a better word, the cathedral has put in place to enable you know, our political opponents to suppress any dissent. And I'm not sure that in the grand scheme of things, even though the Twitter files on the face of it, I mean, I feel like the Twitter files are an incredibly important piece of evidence that we can deploy to try and disrupt the attempt to impose these legal and regulatory tools to suppress dissent. But it feels like a slightly missed opportunity because the way in which Elon Musk has gone about disclosing this information isn't 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 entirely in the service of kind of free speech it's also about promoting himself and you know causing mayhem and you know uh, antagonizing the libs uh, you know uh, uh, whilst all of that is fun and it's entertaining and we enjoy it i'm not sure it serves the kind of long term strategic process of you know enabling us to report the truth on platforms like twitter well, I agree with you on one thing, which is that the EU are a powerful enemy and it may be. And as you say, the online safety bill is a disaster. And this thing about finding them 10% of annual global turnover and Ofcom is a disaster. These are all terrible things. And it may well be that, and I was worried that Twitter would even be banned in Europe and, and potentially and restricted here. And that, that's probably what will happen. Like you say, it will probably end up more restricted in Europe and restricted here and less restricted in America. And that will lessen its impact so it becomes a kind of American free speech app. And and I think probably more and more people will leave it, all the Mastodon types, all the, all the Stephen Fry's and the Sam Harris's will all leave and try and put pressure on it that way. Yeah, and that is my worry that it becomes less relevant, that it becomes a smaller act that you only get in Texas or something, you know, and it becomes a sort of parlor by default. It probably will never be as minor as parlor, but it, it, it sort of becomes that way a little bit. That is my concern. But I just think those are the terms of the war. You know, I think you're just describing the war. The war is powerful in institutions like EU, the EU or Ofcom versus this versus freedom. I think you're just describing that is the battle. Maybe, but I think you see, I, I'm not sure it is. I mean, I, I'm not sure that. I mean, I think of course we are embroiled in a culture war, but um, I think I think you know these issues are so important and Twitter is so important that it's 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 um, disappointing that Elon Musk is behaving like a kind of base combatant um, in this culture war, um, making it, which is why people like Stephen Fry and Elton John are leaving the platform and people are leaving, you know, en masse, um, uh, you know, and it is, it's not, it's not becoming parlor, as you say, but, but, you know, couldn't there be a way of, of returning Twitter to what it originally was and um, making it a more, pro-free speech platform, allowing more diverse points of view to be expressed on it, and, and publicizing the Twitter files in that context. But but by doing it in this kind of aggressive, confrontational, slightly ironic, Gen X-based way, he's sort of like not serving the larger cause as well as he might be. But, you know, uh, uh, it, it's certainly better than, than not doing anything at all. And, um, you know, uh, on balance, of course, I think he's a good thing. Well... Just to maybe we'll finish on that, but I'll just quickly add my reply because it's relevant, which is you're basically 
making the same critique that people make of Trump. And I, I posted, Musk is the new Trump, a genuine threat to the regime, but they would rather destroy the whole world than lose an inch of territory. And I'm referring to their sort of nuclear response to the Twitter files and their attempt to shut him down. But you reminded me there that you're basically saying, wouldn't it be good to have the pros of Musk without the flaws? And that's the argument people always made of Trump. Wouldn't it be nice if he was less ridiculous? And Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm looking for the kind of... Um... I, I want I want Musk to behave more like Ron DeSantis and less like Trump. And <laughs> let's not forget that whilst Trump, you know, um, was in his own way quite effective um, and certainly wound up all his enemies, drove them nuts in a way which was very satisfying and entertaining to watch. Ultimately, he lost and the forces of evil became much more powerful as a consequence. And I'm just worried that because Musk is going about prosecuting this war in a Trump-like manner and not in a more diplomatic, mature, strategic way, he's going to end up losing and losing badly and we'll all be the poorer for it. Well, Trump lost a questionable election, but did he lose in that he, he awakened the whole movement? And this is, that's really the question. You're talking about sort of winning within the system. I'm talking about really overturning the whole system, which is no surprise because I'm always way more <laughs> radical than you are <laughs> on just about every issue. Yeah, well, that's but, right. I, think, I, guess, I guess that's the key difference, isn't it? I think the system is fixable, whereas you, you're more of a revolutionary. Yeah, you've walked straight <laughs> into... You left your other podcast, you've walked straight into an, <laughs> the same trap, which is that, um, yeah, I'm just much more... Yeah, extreme than you on these but, things. But interestingly, I think it's important. I think it's good to have these debates um, because this, this what we, there was recently a piece in the National Review about London Calling. It was a very nice it. piece. Really? Yeah. And 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 what it it's it, and it said that London Calling is valuable because it's one of the few places where um, you know someone who thinks that all the terrible things that have happened over the last two and a half to three years, um, someone who thinks that they're essentially evidence of a WEF conspiracy and someone who thinks that they're all cock up. It's good that that debate, there is a place where that debate can take place. So I think it's great that, you know, we're having something like that debate here too. Um, uh, uh, and a debate between people who think the system's broken and needs to be overthrown and those who think that it's it's not broken, it's just stuttering but can be fixed. Um, it, it, there are very few places where that debate unfolds. And the reason why it's important that that debate should happen in some semi-public forum um, is because it's a debate which is happening within marriages, within friendship groups all over the Western world um, and causing schisms and fracture. Um, uh, and one of the good things about you and I debating it, me and Dellingpoll debating it, is that we can debate it in a relatively good humoured way and remain friends. Um, so we're modelling for those couples. You know, imagine there are lots of pretty lots of couples out there um, in which one of them has become, you know, a conspiracy theorist, whereas the other is either, you know, um, uh, doesn't think anything anything's gone wrong or if it has thinks it's all cock up and you know that's put a strain on the marriage so we're we're, we're like uh you know couples counselors nick we're, we're showing those couples how you can navigate these schisms without actually getting divorced you know what toby that's so true and i literally got a call late the other night from someone trying to save their marriage and having this exact problem where the covid had divided them over the vaccine and I was trying to save their marriage. You, you know, you're in real trouble when you're calling Nick Dixon to try and save your marriage. <laughs> and I was doing everything I can to, to try and do that. But that is very true. That, that, that is a debate going on. And the only difference with our debate is it's a little less extreme. And Because if you spoke to James about this stuff, he would say Elon Musk is all part of the PSYOP. And yes, that he's, he's, all, he's just, whereas I'm actually, I'm pro-Musk. And you're <laughs> yeah. also pro-Musk, but a bit more moderately. So 
Yeah, but it, it is an important debate. And I think that was a good one. And it was good natured. You know, all our debates are good natured. Some people write in and they, they think they're less good natured than they are, but I think they're, they're all fine. And after, do you want to quickly do our advert now as well? Yes. So this is an ad from Thor. And I think in order to make it work, I'm going to have to do it in a Scottish <laughs> accent because it begins with a joke. And I, I left out the joke last week because I didn't think I could make it land. Um, but Thor has given me very clear instructions not to leave out the joke. Okay. Uh, he says um, lots of people appreciate this joke and uh, he thinks I can make it land. But I think to make it land, I'm going to have to do it in a Scottish accent. Well, I was a professional comedian for 11 years, so I will be judging it. Okay. Did you hear the one about the Scotsman in London? He drinks 10 fine malt whiskies, then falls down groaning. Barman, what's the matter, sir? Scotsman, I shouldn't have drank that whisky with what I've got, son. Barman, why? What have you got? Scotsman, two pounds, son. That's the joke. Um, so then it goes into <laughs> the, the it goes in, so, so then it goes into then it goes into Thor's voice. This is Thor. I've thought of collecting whiskey, but I always drink everything I buy, no matter how collectible. The solution: I'm investing in a distillery. What's special about this project? Non woke, financially trustworthy, business savvy management, which previously built a brand to a six figure exit. Strong whiskey story and renowned head distiller. Investments are sought from £2,000 with larger sums SEIS qualifying, so the government pays us to invest. My point in talking about whiskey is that as your executive coach or non executive director, I'll bring not just a performance boost to your business, I will also share my trusted network with you. Connect today and you could still join our pre-Christmas coffee club Zoom, where you'll hear the story of a client who sold his business for a billion dollars and hear the key lessons he learned in the process, which are applicable to a business of any size. You can contact me, Thor Holt, at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thor Holt, all one word. That's T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T. Merry Christmas. P.S. I've sent a bottle of whiskey to you in the post, Toby. If Nick would like me to send him something... Let me know what it is. I told him, Nick, that you like um, mojitos and um, <laughs> caipirinas. Um, uh, and he didn't believe me. He thought, no, that cannot be true. <laughs> Surely he likes whiskey. I was like, no, I, I think he likes the uh, what, what we might refer to as ladies drinks, Thor. Um, anyway, so I think you need, if, could, what could he send you? Could he send you like one of the, what, can you buy ready mixed um, mojitos in Sainsbury's? Do you know what? It's a big problem because as I said, I'm genetically predisposed to not be able to drink whiskey as I, I recall counted the other week uh, yes. i can't really drink red wine either i used to I, I can drink white wine which i had at the battle of ideas which i know is a bit girly but it's not quite as bad as as mojitos but yeah i've got this problem i mean michael knowles has the same thing he's a totally based catholic traditionalist but he just happens to like these kinds of it's kind of like genetic there's nothing you can do about it um so i don't know toby could, could is white wine too is that too feminine uh, no, I think white wine's fine. I think you could ask him for a bottle of white wine. I don't think, he'd be, I don't think that would shock his his macho Scottish sensibilities. I think that would be acceptable. Okay, well let's let's try that bottle Thank- of white bottle of white wine for the lady then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is like being back in the north again. It's, I, I used to drink pints. I used to drink everything, but it, I just, my, it just doesn't agree with my body anymore, sadly. Um, but thank you, Thor. Either way, um, I'll just take the cash if you prefer. All right, well, now let's go to Will for our top stories of the week. 
Okay, I'm here with Will Jones, our editor of The Daily Skeptic, and we've got some great stories, particularly this first one. British state deployed counter-terrorism unit to crush social media and scientific dissent on vaccines and lockdowns. And this is mad. I don't know if this is the 77th brigade we've all heard about, but they were sort of panicking about Scotland. Matt Hancock was tweaking algorithms. He was talking to his mate, Nick Clegg. They were deploying a team that's usually used on ISIS. Gove was brought in to ban anti-lockdown protests. Dominic Cummings was obsessed with masks. I mean, this story is mental, Will. Yeah, this is crazy. This is uh, really shows the, the lengths that the British state and the government went to to, uh, to crush dissent uh, from scientists um, and on social media. So we have, uh, it's come from Matt Hancock's uh, diaries, which were co-written by Isabel Oakshot. Now, the reason that's remarkable, of course, is because Isabel Oakshot is very much a sceptic of uh, lockdowns and the government's response and she's, she's very upfront about that and so and she says the reason she did it is because she re- it was such a great opportunity to just find out so much about what really went on behind the scenes and in government with this disastrous policy and some of the things she found are as we've as you've just said shocking in, in particular this deployment of this unit in the cabinet office that was set up to counter ISIS Islamic State propaganda was set on COVID dissent on social media, on the Great Barrington Declaration, on scientists, on people who were who were saying that lockdowns or masks weren't uh, weren't necessarily the best idea, and and trying to shut it down. And we saw some of the results of that project uh, with the Neil O'Brien setting up the uh, COVID FAQ uh, website, which was uh, to counter the so-called misinformation of Carl Hennigan um, and other. You know, these are eminent leading scientists in the field of epidemiology and all things to do with COVID. And yet here we have politicians and journalists uh, setting up these websites to smear and to try and discredit these these people. Shocking, shocking. Yeah, that is an absolutely shocking story. Uh, let's do this one, which is also a bit ridiculous. Witty and Valance's self-exculpatory independent lockdown report is an evidence-free whitewash. So this is a piece written for us by Carl Hennigan and uh, his colleague Tom Jefferson uh, for the site. And, they, and they've, they've wrote, written about this report that leaders, our scientific leaders in the pandemic, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer, have written this so-called independent report obviously not independent at all, as they point out. It's been written by the very people who are leading the the lockdown. So very, very much invested in all the disastrous policy responses and wanting to defend them. And so sure enough, there are there are no apologies. There are possibly mild acknowledgements, as, as we've often heard, of that there might be some bad consequences of lockdowns and some of these other policies, but nothing really suggests they think it was a it was a bad idea. And um, they don't appeal to any new evidence. As usual, this, this stuff is is just churned out without any justification in evidence or data, uh, just assumptions. And as Carl and Tom point out, uh, lots of references to models, models which tell you what you put into it, tell you what you want to hear. So, yeah, so this is, and it just it just shows how the establishment and those who drove these policies are really uh, looking at having cover up dissent at the time and now trying to, in the in hindsight, trying to write the history and try and, uh, justify uh, what they've done, of which, uh, and the worst thing about that, of course, is that that means that we will just do it all over again next time. So we really need this needs to be countered. Yeah, that's a chilling thought. I know it's basically we've checked what we did and we found it was fine. <laughs> that's basically the report. Marking their own homework. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So let's do this one. Another disturbing story. UK approves Pfizer vaccine for babies. What? 
Yep, so uh, we thought this wasn't going to happen here. We hoped it wasn't going to happen here. But the MHRA, in its uh, in its glorious wisdom, has, has decided that the Pfizer vaccine is suitable and safe and effective for use on infants of six months to four years old. So um, this is a, a new low, uh, both in terms of age and in terms of ethics for this body. Now, fortunately... Um, this is, doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be rolled out. It still has to be approved for rollout by the JCVI, who have been more sceptical uh, than the MHRA. So that is that is one small mercy. Uh, it may not actually get rolled out, but you know this is the first step, and they've said it's safe, which is which is ludicrous. Um, and the, and another small mercy is that they did go for the lower dose. Now, in there was a study uh, a few months back uh, looking at the vaccine in this age group, uh, which found that up to one in five hundred of those injected with Pfizer in this age group, six months to four years, were hospitalized with such a serious adverse effect injury that they were that they were hospitalized uh, with it. And so clearly this vaccine is not safe. However, those injuries were all in the higher dose groups. But so it's a relatively small study. We don't know how dangerous it is, um, which we'd be know from a larger study. So there still isn't the data on this. But it is a small mercy that they have at least gone for the for the lower dose. Of course, the whole thing is pointless. The disease is not in, in any way dangerous for this age group. So it's, so this is so it's all risk and no benefit. But there you go. That's what they've done. So here's another one that's very disturbing about a disease that may be more dangerous. Strep A kills more children than COVID did in its first year. Yeah. So um, just to illustrate how non-deadly COVID is and how other things are much worse, um, especially for this age group, Strep A and uh, Scarlet Fever has now claimed, at the time we wrote this story, it was nine lives of children uh, in this country. Um, but the, the latest tally is 16, which is um, obviously very tragic. Um, and uh, hearts go out to uh, those who've lost their children to this disease. Uh, and one of the worst things is that many experts, including uh, some from the UK HSA itself, think that the reason why children are so susceptible, unusually susceptible to this bug, that why it's being more serious for uh, children uh, this year, is because of their lack of exposure to, to the, virus, the virus that causes it, in, uh, sorry, bacteria that causes it, during lockdown. So in fact, these children who've, been, who've suffered through lockdowns and have basically been deprived of um, years of their childhood um, and their schooling, because of those same lockdowns, these poor 16 children are essentially killed by those lockdowns as well. So awful, awful story. And also shows that COVID um, was not the, the deadly disease, uh, especially for this age group. Yep. And uh, yeah, there's some speculation on, on whether it was lockdowns that, that reduced the immunity or not. The, the, the papers did say that on the front page, and they even said experts uh, claimed it. Though I spoke to a doctor in the pub, a consultant, who says, well, he's not sure that that really was the cause. So he's he's maybe not an official source. So it may well have been that. What about a couple of stories here on the safe and effective medical treatment? Incredibly high excess deaths must be investigated, says Australia's top actuary body. Yeah, so the uh, top actuary body in Australia has come out and has analysed the data and it said the number of excess deaths in Australia in the last uh, 18 months has been um, has been off the scale. It's normally um, even a bad flu year. They say it's usually only like 1% over. It's now currently running, uh, by their calculation, 15% over, or is it 13%? Um, and in, in the raw data, it's 17% over. The actuaries have a, have a clever way of adjusting the data so that it reduces it. But however you look at it, it is, it is extremely high, and they, and they are worried, and they are saying um, that it needs to be looked into. Now, of course, 
they're 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 saying that the vaccines have nothing to do with it, um, but that they do they do say that most of the deaths. Um, or the largest category are heart-related deaths or deaths of an unspecified cause. So, so we've got these mysterious sudden deaths that we've been seeing um, in other countries and in Austra- and we're seeing in Australia as well. All since uh, 2021, when the vaccines were rolled out, they're saying that it's um, that they're blaming the usual things, uh, post effects of COVID. They've also got a bit of a healthcare crisis going on there. Um, and so they're blaming that as well. So all the usual things. But of course, the one thing that it can't, they say it can't possibly be is the vaccine. But they're not, they're not looking at the data, are they? They're not, they're not, they don't want to look at that. And they're certainly not looking at the autopsies that have been uh, showing that this is indeed something that the vaccines can do, as we've talked about last week. Yeah, and there was a similar story, uh, sudden deaths explode in Germany after vaccine rollout. Yeah, new insurance data from Germany has uh, just been released um, in the last couple of days, which uh, shows that the the number of sudden deaths in Germany is um, is more than doubled uh, from 2021 compared to 2020, um, and that's continued in 2022 as well. So uh, this is this is from insurance data. The insurance companies didn't release it, but a politician and a data analyst successfully forced uh, through freedom of information that data to be disclosed. Um, and now they've now they've published it, and it is it is shocking. Now, obviously, we can't say for sure um, what's causing it, but uh, but with, we know from earlier insurance data uh, reveals that the number of claims for vaccine adverse effects on uh, insurance in Germany has been over thirty fold higher since twenty twenty one since the COVID vaccines rolled out. So there's definitely a picture forming here, and this yet again needs to be looked into properly and objectively so that the authorities can stop just denying that the vaccines have anything to do with this. Yeah, I do feel for people that took the vaccine. I said in one of my typically moderate tweets that um, it was a heck of a lot to ask of people that they follow current affairs closely, resist a global propaganda campaign, accept that the regime doesn't care about them or would actively prefer them dead and ignore all family and peer pressure. I mean, it was a heck of a thing. You know, obviously people like me, are built to be iconoclast and contrarians. It wasn't a problem, but it was even for me. It was a bit of pressure at some point, you know, from my mum trying to tell me to take it and so on, and my brother and me not even being able to tell my brother that I hadn't. And I just I do feel for all the people that were tricked into taking this thing. Yeah, it was a big propaganda uh, campaign. Also, the the trials initially uh, made it look like if you didn't look at too closely, um, made it look like it was um, effective and safe or safeish. But it wasn't supposed to be rolled out to all age groups. And I was surprised that it was rolled out as, as some of the scientists involved have recently indicated that they were they were surprised as well. And I was and I was also surprised that people younger were so keen and interested in taking it because you would have thought that the at least the potential for risk was there, especially when the clots and the myocarditis started coming out in uh, spring 2021, the, the side effects. Um, I, I have been surprised at how... Uh, people uh, have have not had second thoughts or thought twice, I should say, about um, about it. And but I think that it was a very strong propaganda campaign, wasn't it? So yeah, and particularly if you're young, they're the most susceptible susceptible minds. But yeah, particularly egregious when applied to young people. Mm. Oh well, but that those were good stories, though. Thanks for that, Will. And we'll catch up with you again, I'm sure, next week. All right, and now let's go back to me and Toby. So do you want to quickly do the World Cup before we go to Pete Woke? Yeah, so um, yeah, I was disappointed, obviously, by um, England's exit and the manner of England's exit. Um, you know, um, Harry Kane missing a penalty. 
Um, and it was the same. It was the same um, Achilles heel um, that was exposed by our performance in the final of the Euros. Um, again, it was missed penalties, which uh, which 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 did it did for us in the end. And you'd think, kind of like having having lost the penalty shootout, you know, a succession of players missing penalties in the penalty shootout last year. Gareth Southgate would have spent a decent amount of time practicing penalties with the squad um and again you felt he hadn't really done that he was relying on you know on them just being able to take penalties um and and you know and incredibly um you know he had an opportunity harry kane had an opportunity to get us back into the game and it would have almost certainly gone to extra time if he'd scored that penalty and evened up the score but he skied it um and and then there was this terrible comment i thought by southgate afterwards in which he said "I, i don't think the players could give could give any more it's like well you know they could have you know harry kane could have given a bit more he could have scored the penalty <laughs> you know it's like how much how much if it's like it's like and everyone afterwards was saying oh they gave it their everything if it wasn't for harry kane we wouldn't have got as far as we did let's not be too hard on him i guess kind of you know um preempting a kind of backlash on twitter which everyone was anticipating and wanting to protect harry's kind of fragile mental health and the vulnerability he'd be feeling after missing the penalty it didn't want him to have to bear this cross like gareth southgate has had to bear that cross for you know decades afterwards um but you know at the same time you know it's okay isn't it to be a little bit disappointed that harry kane missed a penalty and put us out of the world cup as a consequence i don't know did you watch it I did. We, I did. I was finally not working, so it was the first game I was able to watch, and it's the first one we lose. Uh, yes, it, we've become a lot more touchy-feely. The, the Harry Kane penalty, I don't think you'll be especially blamed for because there was so much else in the match. I was blaming the ref mainly for his incredibly dodgy decision, the, the, the foul on Saka not given and the Harry Kane mm. free kick or penalty not given. And a Scottish guy in our five-a-side group was immediately chiming in after, saying, stop blaming the ref, everyone, and lecturing all the English people. It's like, give it, give it a rest, mate. It was immediately after the game, and you're alienating yourself in the five-a-side group with your Scottish take on this. But I saw, speaking of like, I don't think Harry Kane will be really attacked for this because there's so much else, and he did score one penalty. Whereas someone was tweeting, oh, you know, they're attacking the black players more as always. And then I just tweeted a picture of the effigy of Beckham hanging that was put up at a pub in Croydon in 1998. I mean, he got sent off in 1998 and people wanted to literally hang hang him. So it's like, no, people, people have a go at players of all races. Yeah, it's amazing we haven't sorted out penalties. Apparently we did practice lows last time. We still messed them up. But what was notable on this was it was the second penalty of the game. And it, what's quite interesting, even if you're not a football fan, is there was a funny article, I say funny, sort of stupid, from a psychologist saying it was because he didn't have his support there in the form of Jordan Henderson, who on the first penalty surrounded him and kind of backed off the French players and kind of had it, had his back and was protecting him, saying, hey, you're okay, Harry, I've got you here. And so he scored the penalty. Then Henderson went off the pitch, he was substituted. So on the second penalty, he didn't have his... Scouse support, oh, he's actually from Sunderland, but he didn't have a support animal there in the form of Hendo, and that he was exposed to the French jeers, and that's why he missed. Pretty stupid theory. Far more likely is that you've already taken one penalty. You're facing the keeper from your own club team, Loris, who knows you inside out. You've gone the way that you want to go and scored it the first time, and he's gone the other way. But then on the second penalty, you get into that kind of the sort of Princess Bride-esque mind games of like which cup is the poison in. You're like, am I going to go the same way again, and or am I going to go the opposite way? And which which is he thinking? And you psych yourself out to the point where pe- I, I agreed much more with the theory of the pundits that night that 
He went the same way, but tried to get extra power into it to make sure even if Lloris goes the right way, he'll score and thus skied it. Okay, yeah, maybe that is a more plausible theory. Yeah, the idea that he missed it because his hendo support animal wasn't there seems a bit far fetched. I mean, our football is really so psychologically fragile that you know, without their support animals, they can't take penalties. No, it's like especially maybe they're, Harry maybe Kane. they're the wrong wrong business if that's if they're that fragile. No, Kane's a bit robotic. He's a bit like he plays golf. He's got a sort of Tiger Woods quality. You see him before the penalty. You know he's going through some mental preparation. He's got. I I, I don't think it's that at all. Just briefly. For the non-football fan, it's quite interesting that Diane Abbott tweeted, without players of immigrant origin, including Kane and Maguire of Irish descent. Oh, wow, she's got them in as well. The English squad would be a very small squad indeed. <laughs> and she seems to think we'd have no players without immigration. How did we field teams this whole time? How did we win in 1966? <laughs> what, what we, we were just fielding four English players, Toby. There was no one else on the pitch. How did we manage? <laughs> yeah. no. How right, did we it's... get further in 1990? How did we get further in 66? Somehow, even when, even when, you know, none of the players are racially abused, um, you can't even conceivably blame any of the black players for the fact that we went out or lost the game. Even, even in those circumstances, Diane Abbott finds a way to kind of troll us and race bait. She's quite, she's got, I suppose in a way you have to admire her schutzpah. Yeah. Yeah, she she really goes for it. I mean, she is the person that praised Mao on BBC One, so she really goes for it, Diane. You've got to hand it to her. All right, that's the World Cup. Let's now go to Peak Woke. So I've got a couple of Peak Wokes this week, Toby. Do you want to go first or me? Uh, why don't you go first? Okay, so here's one for you. Argentina, we're actually keeping it on a football theme. So the Washington Post said, Perspective. As fans keep up with Argentina's success in this year's World Cup, a familiar question arises. Why doesn't the team have more black players? Argentina is far more diverse than many realise, but the myth that it's a white nation has persisted. Uh, So that was the Washington Post. They then had to issue a correction. Due to an editing error, an earlier version of this piece noted that roughly 1% of the Argentinian population was black, according to a 2010 government release census. While the number of black people cited was accurate, the percentage was actually far less than 1%, and the piece has been amended to state that. So they're asking the question, why are there not more black players, which is similar to what Diane Abbott was just talking about. And the answer is, because less than 1% of the population are black. So that was pretty Pete Woke from the old Washpo. And the other one actually comes from Washpo as well. And this is probably my best one. And it's now Shark Week is racist. The Daily Mail said, Woke Washington Post claims annual Discovery Channel Predator Fest features too many white male experts on screen. So the claim was that Shark Week is too many white male experts. And not only that, but there are too many called Mike. Basically, Toby, we need to smash the glass ceiling on white male shark experts called Mike because there were more (laughs) called Mike than there were women period, as Americans say. So there were just so many mics. They weren't even they weren't giving the women a chance to talk about sharks. And the other critique was that it emphasized negative messages about sharks, which I think is a bit unfair. If you've had a negative lived experience with a shark, Toby, like it ate you, for example, you know, or bit your leg off, um, you might say, I tell you what, I've had quite a negative experience of sharks, but they wanted to get rid of negative messaging on sharks by white men named Mike. And I'm going for peak woke with that. Can you beat me? Yeah, no. Well, those are both quite good, particularly, particularly the shark one. Um, but um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, uh, the University of um, Brighton sent out a nine-page document to all staff 
banning um, a long list of phrases because um, the university is concerned that they'll offend uh, students. And one of the phrases is Christmas break. So staff um, are told they can no longer use the phrase Christmas break and must now refer to the winter closure period instead, because according to this leaflet, the phrase Christmas break is too Christian centric. And they've also got to avoid using the word snowflakes uh, because apparently the students are so sensitive though you can't say that they're snowflakes, that they'll be triggered by the word snowflake. Um, that you, can't use the word, you can't use the word triggered now either. Oh, and, and the word depressing um, is off limits because it could offend someone with mental health issues. So if you describe, it's okay to describe someone as suffering from depression. But if you describe something like, you know, the, the, the bar has run out of Guinness as depressing, that would be insensitive to people with mental health issues. Okay, that, that's my first. My second is... Um, so um, uh, this story broke today. I think the Cambridge Dictionary um, has a uh, has 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 issued a supplementary definition of uh, woman and man. And woman is now defined, or at least there is this now now this supplementary definition of woman as quote um, a person who identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. And uh, the example is. She was the first trans woman elected to a national office. Um, and uh, they've also redefined, uh, may, or rather added this definition of male. And it's an adult who lives and identifies as male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. And Cambridge, the, the, the um, creators of the Cambridge Dictionary have justified this on the grounds uh, that they uh, made a careful study of usage patterns. And apparently they discovered that that is now the way in which many people are using the words woman and man, um, which uh, which I think has got to be complete rubbish. Um, how many people are actually using that definition of woman and man other than a few woke activists? But anyway, so those are my two. They're strong. I mean, I, I saw the dictionary one and left it for you because I already had my sharks. Very, very close. I mean, the Christmas one, was it winter closure period? It's it's such an insult to our whole culture. It's an insult to Christianity, and I take that one very badly. The the dictionary one is perhaps the most important because it's so fundamental. The sharks one is just absolutely absurd. I think maybe you win with the one of those. I don't know which one. Which one do you think would win this week? I think probably the dictionary one is the most most egregious, as you say. Um, it's demonstrating that um, dictionaries are now responding to being lobbied by woke activists to change the definition of words and when when words are changed in dictionaries bearing the imprimatur of one of our most ancient universities then that is i think quite serious and uh you know will we'll definitely be used in all sorts of ways to punish people for wrong think yeah so i'll give myself weak poke even though i kind of let you have that one and uh, and you can win you can win peak work this week i'm fine with it because that is very important Shall I just quickly read a review? I'm not sure you're going to like this review, but it's too amusing for me not to read. Okay. And you can uh, edit this out if you want, Toby. So they've said, new favorite podcast. Good. Nick is amazing. <laughs> Sorry to have to read these out, guys. Super amusing. Dancing around Toby's controlled opposition. Toby has done good things, but seems to be seeking approval from the regime. I think I need to seek out Nick on GB News for more. Credit to Toby for being the Ronnie Corbett to Nick's Ronnie Barker. (laughs) And that's why I had to read that out, just for that bit. But are you offended by that, Toby, or do you think that's just deadly accurate? 
I think it isn't it. Isn't, I think of you as being more like um, uh, Stan Laurel to my Oliver Hardy. Um, <laughs> which is the good but, one? Which is the thick one? Am I the thick one? Stan Laurel is the kind of fat, slightly pompous but dominant one. Um, oh yeah, and the uh, other one was from Lancashire. No, 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 no that's Stan Laurel. Oliver Hardy is the is the is the is the is the, is the fat one, and, Stan and the thin one the was thin from one. Lancashire yeah. or something. I, I think, think so. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know which which one am I then, the fat one or the thin one? You're the thin one. <laughs> yeah, so I'm the dumb one, and you're sort of running things, but but overweight. Um, <laughs> I'm actually probably fat. The thin you. one that speaks with the squeaky voices. No, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, apparently I'm the Ronnie Barker according to that that review. So, and I thought I might just I might just pick up on some feedback from our debate last week. And again, feel free to tell me off for this, Toby, because I don't know how sensitive you are about this stuff. But people say, "Oh, we're not." You know, someone said, "Oh, you're not." I know no one's reading these comments, but don't worry, I am reading them. I, I can't actually log in on the Daily Skeptic and comment for some reason, but I am reading them. So this comes from Free Lemming, and I am reading your take, Free Lemming. So don't worry. And and and, and Lemming says, disappointed and surprised by Toby's take on mass immigration. Even more di- disappointed and surprised by the tone he took, almost scolding. It's a bit too long, but he sort of claims that you contradicted yourself, drawing out the diversionary argument of criticism of mass immigration being based around race, not culture, and that multiculturalism is embedded in our history and there being no such thing as really English culture. He then went on correctly to acknowledge that English culture is affected by immigrants that refuse to integrate fully into English society. He completely tied himself up in knots by stating that there wasn't really an English culture, then going on to say the same culture that doesn't exist can be eroded. Of course, there's an English culture, and of course, it's being eroded by a million tiny cuts, which the examples are becoming almost endless. Sorry for reading that badly, Freelemming. You wrote it better than I read it. And then he, then he amends it later, and he's saying, I know that nobody will be reading these comments, but I am reading them. But then he goes on to say that you almost, you literally saved his life. I was starting to spiral into a deep, dark well of depression, feeling I was, out, I was alone, that the world had gone crazy. We went mind you said it out the swear, and virtually nobody seemed to notice. Then I found this site. The articles and comment section definitely pulled me back. And for that, I will always be eternally grateful to Toby. But what it was, Toby, I won't read the whole thing because it's so much more, but he, he said that although he's grateful to you for that, he felt that you were sort of scolding and, and said people like you to me last week delivered with a little venom and that he was a person like me thinking that immigration was a big problem. Now, I didn't think you were delivering that with venom. I just thought you were literally saying people on your side of the argument. But a few people in the reviews and the feedback have been a bit disappointed by your pro-mass immigration argument. Well, I guess um, I don't think of myself as pro-mass immigration. Um, I'm certainly in favour of controlled immigration. Um, But I also think that... um, uh, I'm not an ethno-nationalist and wouldn't oppose immigration on those grounds. And to kind of answer the criticism, um, I think my argument is that um, English identity has always been um, multi-ethnic, not multicultural, but multi-ethnic. And therefore, the admission of people of different ethnicities into our country won't necessarily dilute and undermine English culture, provided they properly assimilate i think that that's my argument right but i wasn't um, making an ethno-nationalist argument because i repeatedly stated it's not it's not race it's englishness i was making an argument about the sheer numbers meaning that the country will will will, will change beyond recognition but but just to be clear yeah but, i was I just yeah i suppose yeah um i wasn't accusing you of being um uh, an ethno-nationalist <laughs> but just me- rather making the case um uh making the case against an ethno-nationalist defense of englishness I see. Well, I've actually written my article now for Substack and it's in draft form. I'm just going to check it 
to check it's not too ethno-nationalist and then I'm going to re- release it because it's a, it'll deal with it, in my opinion, more sort of uh, with more nuance and that'll come out on my substack, nickdixon.substack.com. But yeah, I mean, Free Lemon concludes here. I just want to give you the props here. He does say, um, he said, uh, he said, so he talks about his disappointment. I'm assuming it's a he for some reason. And says what, what it was, I think, and I've been trying to understand this myself, is that Toby epitomizes what it means to be English. Great sense of humor, calm, quietly passionate, polite, self-deprecating, welcoming, patriotic, I thought, an all-around decent bloke. Somebody that if you wanted to hold up as an example of the product of English culture, Toby would be at the front of the queue. But Toby doesn't seem aware of this himself, isn't aware that the culture that he represents so well is under threat. It's that sad irony that rankled. But I guess you've already addressed that. But I just wanted to say that he is praising you a lot, but he's saying, come on, Toby, the England that you love is under threat. Yes, I think that, that, that I mean, Curiously, that's a paradox, I think, that um, I spoke about um, uh, in the Free Speech Union uh, conversation, Speakeasy, with Jack D. Um, uh, no, no, with Neil Oliver, that's right. I mean, I think, I think, curiously, people who exemplify English culture and are absolutely typically English and in some ways an advertisement for the virtues of being English often as self-deprecating about Englishness and aren't as patriotic as you want them to be because being self-deprecating, not being at all nationalistic, um, putting down your country is an expression of that kind of ironic, self-deprecating English sensibility. So it's quite difficult to kind of exemplify all the virtues, all the appealing things about being English and at the same time be a kind of tub-thumping patriot because that just doesn't sit very comfortably with being English. Yeah, I see that take and that's a reasonable point, like you say, a paradox. But I just think we're at the point where we have to kind of, we have to get into war mode because the other thing about English people is if riled, we will go into war mode and we will beat the whole world in a couple of wars so we can go there. When we're really under threat, we can go there. And the question is whether you think we're under threat and also whether you think uh, immigration and war is an appropriate analogy. <laughs> I've made it now, so don't, don't yeah, want to get you, into the trouble with the invasion. Sounds like, sounds like, yes, sounds like using the invasion metaphor there, <laughs> very suspect. Well, <laughs> you people. I'm, I'm about to release my article. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it paywall because partly the paid people deserve something, but also I'm a bit worried about releasing it non-paywall, whether I'll get in trouble. Yeah, but pay, p- put it behind the paywall. <laughs> NickDixon.substack.com for the paywall articles. And anything you want to promote, Toby? No, just um, oh well. We, we're now selling um, the um, infamous Orwell surprise T-shirts um, uh, at the free, on the Free Speech Union website. If you go to, uh, I think if you go to the front page, you scroll down on the right hand side, you'll see um, a little button which takes you to our merch store. Now, the only thing on sale in our merch store are these T-shirts, but they're very good value, only twenty pounds, and at least half of that is a donation to the Free Speech Union. So freespeechunion.org if you haven't yet bought your loved one a christmas present ideal gift there 20 pound free speech union orwell surprise t-shirt fantastic cartoon by bob moran shows george orwell reading 1984 looking up no reading a book called 19 no called 2022 looking up and going blimey um because uh, mm. he's so surprised by how much worse it is than he anticipated anyway it's a very funny t-shirt good joke and good way of supporting the free speech union I'd like to get that from my family, but I'm not sure any of them would actually like it. But <laughs> because they're just they're part of the system. But that's a great T-shirt for anyone who any freedom lovers in your family or your friends. So yeah, all right, do that. 
And I just want to quickly, very briefly note, sorry for the sound last week. It was no one's fault because the settings on my sound said that they were all perfect, but I had to go to the wrong setting, then click back onto the right settings for them to work, which I could never have predicted. And in my own earphones, it all sounds the same. So sorry if it was bad sound. Hopefully it's better this week. And it wasn't Jason, our producer's fault. He does a great job. Just want to say that. And thanks to everyone for your support and your reviews. Leave a five-star review and a comment, especially if it's nice about me and also Toby. But uh, until next week, stay skeptical. Bye.